Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in his new book, How the Word is Passed, Clint Smith takes readers to sites across America where he says the story of slavery lives on. Monticello, Angola Prison, a cemetery for Confederate soldiers. On his travels, Smith discovers buried facts, false narratives, and willful ignorance about slavery. And through conversations with people he meets along the way, he shows us where we are as a nation when it comes to reckoning with our history of slavery. A conversation with Clint Smith. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Poet and Atlantic staff writer Clint Smith visited eight places in the U.S., among them a functioning prison and former plantations, that tell the story of slavery, literally tell the story through tours and reenactments with varying degrees of accuracy. Smith engages with the visitors at these places, walks the paths, and absorbs the sights and smells. And in doing so, he helps us see and feel how Americans today face up to or disregard slavery's legacy. His new book is How the Word is Passed, Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Welcome to Forum, Clint Smith. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And I was really struck by how you'd engage with the places you'd visit on a sensory level. And I was wondering if you could start by just giving us a sense of your process, what you'd notice, how you'd engage with these sites that are telling stories about slavery. Yeah, I I appreciate you saying so. I think part of what motivated the project was having spent years with the historiography of slavery and with the scholarship that has been so transformative for me personally, intellectually, books like The Hemingses of Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh by Dinah Ramey Berry, Slavery in New York by Leslie Harris and Ira Berlin, uh, The Myth of the Black Confederate, Kevin Levin, and all of these books that have really helped ground me in an, a deeper understanding of what slavery was and how it has shaped both the the past and the contemporary landscape of inequality in this country. And part of what I wanted to do, my background is is a, a poet. I, I began writing as a poet. My first book is a, a collection of poems. Mm. And I thought, what would it look like to go to these places that these historians have written about and to put this conversation in history with the actual landscape and with the people on 
on that land? Like, what, what do these places look like? What do they smell like? What does the air taste like? What is it? Uh, who are the people who are telling the story of this land? What are their backgrounds? What are their sensibilities? What do their voices sound like? Um, and and what does it mean to to be physically in the places where this history took place? Because I think it's one thing to read about a slave cabin, and it's another thing to stand inside of one and to feel the way that the and hear the way that the the wood moans under your feet when you take a step, or the way that light sort of slices in through cracks in the wood that give you a sense of how susceptible to the elements these families would be. And so I just really wanted to create a sort of sensory experience for the reader that felt almost uh, cinematic. I wanted I wanted a, a history book that in many ways felt like a novel. Um, and, and that was my my hope uh, of what I could contribute to to this really robust uh, body of work. Yes, I, I did wonder if if that desire to really engage with the space in that way came from your sensibility as a poet. The other thing it made me think about was how the sensory experience divorced from say the discourse and noise about an issue can help us connect to it like a sense of truth in ways that that reading or other things might not allow us to or or maybe at least give us like a foundation from which to to begin <laughs> to take things in um yeah absolutely sorry, i mean I, yeah. I, I, yeah sorry i, I mean I, I just was gonna say i think that it creates a there's a sense of intimacy that exists there. Um, you know, I, I think when I am standing on the land or when I am inside of the buildings or when I am uh, traversing the same space that carries that history in its soil, uh, I am both recognizing, I'm, became, I'm becoming more acutely aware of my physical proximity to this history and to the way that it has shaped the landscape and topography of this country, but also this, our sort of temporal proximity. You know, when you stand inside of a slave cabin that was the actual slave cabin where enslaved people slept, you realize and you are reminded that this thing that we tell ourselves was a long time ago wasn't actually that long ago at all, right? You know, the slavery existed for 250 years in this country and it's only not existed for 150. So you have this institution that existed for 100 years longer than it didn't. And, and we have reminders every day about how recent it was. You know, the woman who opened the National Museum of African-American history and culture alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the right. granddaughter or the great granddaughter, but she was the daughter of someone born into slavery. My, my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. And so when my, you know, two-year-old daughter sits on my grandfather's lap and I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap, I'm reminded that again, this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, wasn't that long ago at all. And so any, any idea that that, history would not shape what our contemporary society looks like is is both morally and intellectually dis disingenuous. And I think being in these places really gives you a sense of, of how recent it was because of the sort of physical and sensory intimacy you feel um, being there. Right. What, what inspired you to write the book? So the origin story of the book is uh, that in 2017, uh, specifically May of 2017, I was watching some Confederate statues come down in my hometown in New Orleans. Um, this is two years after the city council and the mayor had uh, voted to, to have the statues removed. And this was following the uh, massacre 
at the Charleston church uh, at the hands of Dylan Roof, um, who killed the, the nine members of that church. And so, right. you know, the, co- the country was experiencing its own uh, iteration of, of this reckoning around the Confederacy and Confederate iconography at that time. But it took two years for the statues to ultimately come down in New Orleans because of protests and litigation and, and things of that nature. But I was watching these statues come down, statues to Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, these leaders of the Confederacy, and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority Black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. What did it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And what are the implications of that? Because we know that symbols aren't just symbols. They are reflective of stories that people tell. And those stories embed themselves into the narratives that societies carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy, that shapes the material conditions of people's lives. Which isn't to say that taking down a 60 foot tall statue of Robert E. Lee or making Juneteenth a holiday is in and of itself going to erase the racial wealth gap. Of course not. But but what it is to say is that these things are all part of an ecosystem of ideas and stories that help us understand what has happened in this country and what has happened to different groups of people in this country's history in order to better understand how we should account for the harm that has been done. And so I was thinking about you know, how my hometown in New Orleans was reckoning with or failing to reckon with its own relationship to the history of slavery, and then kind of wanted to broaden it out and think about how other places across the country uh, were doing it or or failing to do it in their own way. I love the way that you describe the connection from monuments all the way to public policy. But I also couldn't help but wonder, being in that kind of environment, what effect that had on you personally in New Orleans? You know, it's it's an interesting thing, because I didn't I didn't understand really what the statues were when I was a child. You know, I mean, they were just Confederate statues and statues to enslavers. I mean, there are over a hundred of them in New Orleans, you know, uh, people who owned human beings, people who were leaders of the Confederacy. You know, their statues, memorials, building names, street names. Um, it, it was just emblazoned into the landscape of my childhood. I mean, I, I remember in front of City Park. Um, which is the big park in New Orleans, is a, a, an enormous statue of PGT Beauregard, the Confederate general who ordered the first shots that opened the Civil War on horseback. And so I'm, you know, I would go to this park as a child, as a small child, and feed the ducks and the geese with my my mom and my siblings, and would be doing so under the literally under the shadow of of this person who fought a war and led an army that was predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery, and and I didn't, when I was a child, I didn't fully understand what these symbols were. I think there's a there's this sort of a silent violence, if you will, um, of of either not naming who these people are or or some a, a sort of gaslighting of who they were, saying that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man who just fought for the state and the people that he loved, um, when he was in fact a, a a cruel enslaver who like had his. Uh, enslaved property beaten and captured and who, you know, decimated an army, massacred uh, black soldiers in the Union Army who were surrendering during the war, who uh, who said very explicitly that slavery was, uh, you know, good for black people and, and good for a civilizing institution for the African. And so what does it mean, again, that we have a 60 foot tall statue of that person in the middle of our city? And it wasn't until my adulthood that I learned the specifics of who these people were. And then I, and then it, part of what it did was help, help me mo- make more sense of 
the story that has been told about this country uh, that allows for those statues to to be arisen in this context, erected in this context, and and how that story is a part of the sort of myth of American exceptionalism and the myth of meritocracy. And that allows us to believe that the reason one community looks one way and another, another community looks another way is because of the people in those communities rather than what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And so I think gaining clarity about who these people were, who the Confederacy was, uh, and the context that again allowed these things to be erected gives provided me with insight and clarity about why, how my city came to have the sort of uh, profound inequality um, that that it has today. Yes, I'm remembering a line from your chapter on Juneteenth where you talk about being able to know these kinds of things. And you write, I felt as if I would have been liberated from a social and emotional paralysis that for so long I could not name. Is that partly what you're describing? Absolutely. And, and I think that the book is animated by an attempt to, um, you know, sort of un untether myself and unshackle myself from from a sense uh, from that paralysis. Right. I mean, the book, this is not a book that is written by someone who began this project as an expert on the history of slavery. I mean, far from it. The book, the book in and of itself is an attempt for my for me to to learn about and understand this thing that I felt like I had a decent understanding of but would come to learn i i in no way understood in ways that were commensurate with the actual impact that it had on this country and so it is both a, a physical journey in the sense that i am traveling to different places across the country but it also is a personal and, and intellectual journey in which at each of these places i myself am learning more about um, how the history of slavery has manifested itself in this country. Um, and and it is not meant to be didactic or preachy. It is meant to bring the reader along in my own learning journey. And this book has been so powerful and emancipatory for me, um, and I hope it can be for others. We're talking with Clint Smith, poet and staff writer for The Atlantic. His new book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And we will have more with Clint Smith after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Clint Smith, who's written a new book titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Smith is also the author of the poetry collection, Counting Descent. We want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions or reactions to what you're hearing from Clint Smith? How did you learn about slavery in America? Or how do you experience America's monuments to the Civil War or to enslavers? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And you can email us forum at kqed.org. 
One of the first places you went to, Clint Smith, is Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, a plantation that enslaved 150 people. How did that visit open up a new direction for your book? Yeah, the I wanted to go to Monticello for uh, a couple of reasons, and I wanted to open the book with it for a few reasons, because I think that Monticello and Jefferson, uh, Jefferson specifically, is a a person who sort of personifies and embodies so many of the contradictions of of this country, in the sense that Jefferson is someone who owned, uh, who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and is also someone who enslaved over six hundred people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He wrote in one document that all men are created equal, and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, as he puts it. I believe the slave was incapable of love, incapable of incapable of sustaining uh, complex emotion, mm. and and I wanted to go to Monticello to understand how an institution that is tasked with uh, conveying and sharing the legacy of this person, this person who is so central uh, to the founding of this country, how you tell a full and honest story about this person, and not only center the story of this place on Jefferson but also include the stories of the hundreds of enslaved people who lived on this plantation and made it what it was and who in many ways that plantation belongs to more than it does to Jefferson. Jefferson was away in Philadelphia and DC and Paris and New York for extended periods of time. So it was the enslaved families, the Hemingses, the Fawcett's, the Grangers, among others, who, who cultivated that land, who built memories on that land, who built community on that land, and who, who made that land and made everything that happened in Jefferson's life possible because of their labor. And when I was there specifically, I was also uh, had the opportunity to have a conversation with some of the people who were on the, the tour that I was on, uh, which was a tour focused specifically on slavery of Monticello. And I looked, I was watching these two women during our tour uh, named Donna and Grace, and they were clearly, they were deeply unsettled by what they were hearing. Their, their, they, their faces were sort of flushed, their mouths were agape. And I went up to them afterwards and, and I asked them, you know, how they had experienced the tour given by a, a guy named David Thorson, um, really remarkable character and a remarkable tour guide. Um, and they, the first thing they said, they were like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. You know, they said, uh, I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And these are people who, who bought plane tickets, who got, who rented cars, who got hotel rooms, who came to this home as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of the third president of the United States who had no conception of this person being someone who enslaved hundreds of human beings. And that moment was so important for me because it made clear that this book had to be something that was not just my own reflections of going to these places, but it had to, my, my reflections and my reactions had to be in conversation with the reflections and reactions um, of other people. Um, and so I tried to interview as many people as I could, whether it be the guides themselves, the visitors, um, at, at, all, at each place that I go uh, to get a sort of, because if I'm attempting to capture the sort of patchwork of experiences and the patchwork of memories that reflect the inconsistency with which slavery is remembered across this country, I, I needed to make sure that I was capturing that at each of these uh, specific places as well.
Yes. I also love the detail with which you would describe what people look like and how they behaved. And the other thing, too, is what you're describing is so telling, because I remember Donna and Grace, or at least one of them, described themselves as a history nut, and yet they mm -hmm. knew nothing about what you just described about Jefferson. And in addition to that, um, in your conversation with them, and they were talking about the tour was talking about children on the plantation, the enslaved children, and how that seemed to particularly disturb Donna. The idea of splitting families and how how splitting families was central to the practice um, of enslaving people as well, and how she found that so appalling. And, and just through that process, you are seeing these two women making connections, I think you described them as Southern Republican women, making connections by by taking this tour. Yeah, it is. Um, it was fascinating to sort of watch it happen in real time. And I think part of what that made clear and what it illuminated is that for so many people, one, they are not taught about slavery in any way that is commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. And then also slavery is for so many an abstract, like a historical abstraction. Like it is, it, people are not accounting for or reckoning with or thinking of the individual lives and individual names and individual faces and people who are impacted by this institution. And family separation is one of those things that for me, even for me, I think I went into this project and the first thing that I think about when I think about slavery is, uh, you know, the beatings and the whippings, the sort of spectacle of cruelty mm -hmm. um, uh, that uh, we see in, in the depictions of slavery yeah. so often. And, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it was it was it's so unsettling and haunting and abhorrent. And uh, we can't look away from that. But for some reason, something I had never thought as much about were, was family separation. And I think that it is not a coincidence that so much of this book is is shaped by and animated by the fact that as I was writing it, my wife and I had uh, had two young children. And so mm. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old now. And sometimes I would do these, I'd, have, I'd just take a moment and I would think about what it would mean if I were sleeping in my house and then I woke up and my children were gone and had just been disappeared in the middle of the night. And you wake up and you find that they have been sent somewhere, you know, thousands of miles away and that you may never see them again. I mean, I can't, I can't even begin to, even as I say it, it's, yes. I'm like shaking, you know, it's, right. I, I can't, but this is the reality that millions and millions of people across generations lived with that at any moment, you could be separated from the people you love, from your children, from your spouse, from your parents, from your community. And, and I, I wanted to, to capture that right, to capture the sort of omnipresent fear that existed um, for so many. Um, and that was the, and that, that happened at Monticello. Like after Jefferson died, hundreds of enslaved people were sold off to pay his debts. Families were separated um, and never saw their loved ones again. And so this is, you know, what happened at Monticello was a microcosm of what happened throughout this country over the course of decades. And it's just so, uh, I think it's really important for people to sit with that. Yeah. Well, listener Gail writes, today's guest has written an amazing book. I bought the audio version and finished it in two days. Listening to the author was an added bonus to a book that is so important. He brought me to all those places, and it was a hard yet a beautiful place to be. 
I can't recommend this book enough. We're talking with Clint Smith. The book is How the Word is Passed. And if you want to join the conversation with your comments, you can post them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And you can email us forum at kqed.org. Let me also go to a call. I'll go to Gwen in San Francisco. Hi, Gwen. Hi, you guys. I was doing some genealogy research, and I discovered, much to my chagrin, that my great-great-grandfather fought for the Confederates because he got a pension from the Tennessee Negro Confederate Pension Fund. So I was horrified about that, but I met some guys that did reenactments, Civil War reenactments, and they said, well, you know, he he was probably made to go by his masters, and it's not like he signed up, and a lot of the black people that fought in this, for the Confederates, as soon as the, they were able to get close to the Union soldiers, they um, they mutinied. So your book brings uh, a light enlightenment about slavery. Also, I want to make a little comment um, about George Washington. I took a tour, I think it's Mount Vernon, where he mm-hmm. lived. And this uh, white woman that was with me was visibly shaken, and she kept insisting that George Washington did not have slaves, even though we were standing in the slave quarters. And in the meantime, a few years later, our school board, which is about to be recalled here in San Francisco, wants to paint over a mural that showed that George Washington had slaves, and the the mural was done by a communist who was trying to depict uh, slavery, but he couldn't, you know, but really bad mouth uh, George Washington. So he did it in a subtle way. But anyway, your book is fabulous because people don't know a lot about the institution of slavery, only what the textbooks, um, you know, have told us. Well, Gwen, you brought up a lot there. I don't know if, Clint Smith, there's any part of that you want to react to. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate the, the the comment, the reflection. Um, you know, I, I could have written, this book is so interesting because, you know, it is written about eight different places, but it could have been written about 100,008. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are places all across this country that have a relationship to the history of slavery in which, you know, the history of slavery is scarred into the, the landscape. Uh and and it was interesting because I had considered going and writing a chapter about Mount Vernon. I had considered writing a chapter about uh, James Madison and, and Mount Pelier. Um, but I, part of what I tried to do was go to find a place that was reflective of some of the themes that one would find at another place. So, you know, in the same way that Monticello is experiencing its own reckoning uh, with how they tell the story of Jefferson and, and it continues to change. I mean, you know, the, if you talk to people who went to Monticello 10 years ago, 20 years ago, their experience was very different than my own. Uh, but now they have a tour focused specifically on slavery at Monticello. They have a tour focused specifically on the Hemings family and Sally Hemings and Jefferson's relationship to her, to the extent that you can call, you know, uh, a, an enslaver having sexual relations with his enslaved property, a relationship in the first right. place. Um, but I wanted to go to places that, would sort of represent some of the same themes that one would find at others. So Monticello, you know, represents what you would see uh, in many ways at Mount Vernon and Mount Pelier. Uh, Angola represents what you might see at a prison in in Mississippi or Alabama. Um, You know, I visited dozens of places, but 
ultimately, um, you know, I didn't want a 700 page book necessarily. So I, uh, I had to try to make it, I didn't want the physical object of the book to be overwhelming. And so I tried to find places that, that captured the themes of, of other places that I might've, uh, might've documented. One of the things that, that I am struck by is how not as many take the tour at Monticello about enslaved people there. So many more take the tour of Jefferson's home, for example, which really shows all the aspects of this person that, that I think we've heard the most about in terms of his intellectual curiosity and his broad interests and, and I don't know, even the architecture of the home. And then I'm, I'm so also struck by what Gwen was just saying about how a woman was denying that Washington owned slaves when enslaved people when she's standing in the quarters of people who were enslaved, which I think you really get at the the persistence with which we move toward the story that we prefer versus the story that is true. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that so much of how so many people understand history is based not on primary source documents, not on empirical evidence, not on historical fact. It is reflective of a story they have been told and a story that they tell. And for that woman, uh, what is happening, I think, when when she is being told that uh, George Washington is someone who owned enslaved human beings, is that it is calling into question one of the central uh, foundations and and ideas about this country and the founding of this country and thus what this country is today. And so when you when you remove Washington from being or Jefferson or Madison or any of these folks from being the sort of m- almost myth like uh, saint like. Uh, people uh, that they are sort of rendered as in in so many of our American history textbooks and so much of our public discourse, and you reckon with the fact that they that their actions were were so deeply imbued with things that ran counter to and were hypocritical of the the founding documents that they uh, created. It it sort of decimates your idea of. Of America, and it decimates the idea of the founding of this country, and it decimates the myth of meritocracy. It decimates and shatters and calls into question um, the very one sense of self. Because if your sense of self is so deeply tied to America, like being American, and your sense of what America is is rooted in American exceptionalism, and somebody is telling you that so much of that American exceptionalism, um, or what you find exceptional about America, is actually uh, false or is a or is a lie. Um, then, then it become it becomes like existential for people. So it's not simply that this woman is like, don't talk bad about George Washington. Yeah. It's like, don't talk bad about about this person who represents this country that is so deeply tied to my identity. Um, and so, you know, I think we see this to varying degrees. When I went to the Blandford Cemetery uh, in uh, Petersburg, Virginia, one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country, I think you see it to an exponential degree. Um, there's an even uh, greater and more profound and haunting distortion of history uh, that manifests itself manifests itself there as well. Yes, that that trip to Blanford Cemetery, as you say, uh, a cemetery that is 
that has Confederate soldiers, or, or at least it says that some 30,000 Confederate soldiers are there. And I think there you meet a man named Jeff, who also shows you a whole nother layer of the insistence of holding on to a story about America and a story about the Confederacy and that it was a fight, you know, for freedom and, and for states rights and all of that kind of thing, even when you, you know, even when presented with, as you say, the existence of not that he was, but that if primary source documents exist that say very directly that seceding from the Union was all about the ability to perpetuate slavery, like mm -hmm. specifically states that, that that is something that um, cannot be absorbed because of a level of connection to the false story that goes at the level of family ties. And we're coming up on a break, so I want to get into that right after the break, but we'll share just a couple of comments. Robert writes, those who claim removing monuments to the pillars of the Confederacy as erasing history are wrong. We study history and simply choose not to honor such individuals. Go to Germany. You don't see statues of Heinrich Himmler known as the architect of the Holocaust or drive down Hitler Boulevard. Um, we're talking with Clint Smith. His book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America. Clint Smith is also the author of a poetry collection called Counting Descent. And you, our listeners, are with us, joining us with your thoughts and reflections about slavery in America and curious how you learned about it and how you feel about what you learned about it, or if you have visited historical sites or monuments, how that affected your understanding of American history. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Stay with us. More with Clint Smith after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with poet, teacher, and staff writer at The Atlantic, Clint Smith, about his new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And Clint Smith, just before the break, we were talking about your visit to a Confederate cemetery, a, a cemetery of Confederate soldiers, and also that you attended a Memorial Day celebration there, which is a story in and of itself. But um, you do meet this person named Jeff. And one of the things that I was really um what i really felt got at some of the deep reasons that people cannot let go of a false narrative really came through in your conversation with him can you talk about how his story is so entangled with his love for his grandfather yeah it you know <clears throat> it was really important for me to to like have these conversations 
um, with these folks, with these, they were sons of Confederate veterans, Confederate reenactors, neo-Confederates. Um, and so I, you know, it, it was not without, uh, it was not an experience that was without fear. You know, I was, I think I was, uh, fearful to some degree the entire time I was there, but I also really wanted, I just really wanted to understand how someone comes to believe something that is so demonstrably false. And Jeff was somebody who really opened up. Uh, and he talked about how, when he came to the cemetery, you know, the cemetery where the remains of 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried, one of the largest uh, mass graves of, of Confederates in this country, that he, when he thinks of the cemetery, he thinks of coming to sit in the gazebo um, at the center of the cemetery with his grandfather and how his grandfather and him would sort of watch deer scamper through the tombstones at dusk and how his grandfather would sing him songs. They would sing Dixie. They would, he would tell his grandfather would tell him stories of all the brave men who were buried here, who, who fought this war to protect their families, to protect their communities. And, and, you know, now that is a story that, that Jeff tells his own granddaughters. He talks about how one of the things that he loves most is come bringing his granddaughters to this land and telling, singing these songs and telling them um, all of their incredible ancestors who are who are buried here, who uh, who this country has has attempted to forget, but who were so brave and so um, so courageous. And what it really is a reminder of is, as I said before, like so much of history for people is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence it's a story they've been told and it's a story they tell it is an heirloom that is passed down across generations within mm -hmm. families and within communities uh, and so jeff is like to ask jeff to accept that the the that the army uh that the confederacy was a treasonous army predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery would be for him to accept a reality that again, shatters and decimates so many of the stories that his grandfather told him. And it is wrapped up in this emotional connection that he has with his grandfather. It is wrapped up in the love that he has for his grandfather because his sense of who he is, his sense of his relationship to his grandfather is so firmly entangled and, and, and embedded in these myths and these lies. And so it is not simply uh, for Jeff, like he cannot simply accept this new information without also having it call into question so much of what has shaped his sense of who he is in the world, so much yeah. of what has shaped how he understands his relationship to the people that he love in this world, loves in this world more than anyone. Um, and it is something that now he passes on to his grandchildren. And part of what I, you know, write about and, and think about is <clears throat> that, a, a different decision can be made. Like, it, what would it look like for Jeff to to take his grand his grand his own granddaughters and have them walk around the cemetery and to say, "These are your ancestors, and they fought a war to protect and maintain a horrible thing." But you do not have to be defined by the decisions your ancestors made. You do not have to be defined by the horrible things your family has done. You can recognize what they did was wrong and make a different set of decisions moving forward. And, and to be clear, there are a lot of people who do that. The person that I went to Blanford with, with my friend William, was experiencing his own, he went with me in part because he was experiencing his own reckoning with coming to terms with the fact that he had family. Uh, this is a white guy who had family who who were fought for the Confederacy and, and, and had plantations. And, you know, 
I think we were both going, we were both on our own sort of journeys to better understand this history. Uh, and he's, he is not a Sons of Confederate Veterans member. And so a, a different decision can be made. Uh, but for some people, the stakes feel so high yes. um, that they, they, they can't imagine believing anything else. And let me go to caller Willine in Oxnard. Hi, Willine. Hello. What's on your mind? Um, I got in on the part my husband was on his way to work, and he says, uh, pull this up. And I came in on the part where um, the writer is talking about the separation of family. That is um, that is so true. My grandfather, father, who we call Papa, I'm 65 years old, so I... I actually knew my great-grandfather, Papa, who was also born in slavery. He told, had told the story to the family about the separation of his family. His father was sold um, to another plantation, and he told the family um, when, I guess what they would do, he could still be um, brought back to work. So. Um, he would, the, the slave owner that sold him would, could um, have him to come back to work. Anyway, the story is that when the children and his wife saw him on the plant, back at the plantation to work, for them not to speak to him, not to run to him, hug him, nothing with him, so that at least he could get a chance to see them. He would get a chance to look on his family and be able to know that they were still together or if they were still there at that plantation. Hmm. Um, and I do remember my papa. My, my mother would pick him up, um, and um, I was a little girl, but pick him up for lunch. He had a little uh, stand for sh shining shoes. He died in, in uh, 62 or 63, and he was over 100 then. Uh, Willine, I think this is the second time in this conversation that I find myself shaking. What was your papa's name? Uh, Frank James. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, Clint Smith, any reactions? Yeah, it's, it is. I'm so grateful. Uh, for you sharing that story and you know it is it is a reminder right that like she there are people who are alive today many many people who knew and who loved and who were raised by who were in community with who had relationships with people who were born into intergenerational chattel bondage in this country and it just is, you know, I was taught about slavery in elementary school as if it was something that happened in the Jurassic period, right? <laughs> like it yeah. was dinosaurs and the Flintstones and slavery, as if they all existed at the same time. But to hear this story, right, is such a profound reminder, right? This is somebody who died in, in the 60s, that these, there are people who still, so, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people in this country who are still alive today who loved people who were born enslaved. And, and so it just is a reminder, as I said before, that any notion, any idea that someone attempts to, any suggestion that we should simply 
leave it in the past or that it was a long, long time ago or that it has nothing to do with the, the society we live in today is just so profoundly and egregiously wrong um, that it has to be it has to be named. And I think, you know, the stories like that are, are a reminder um, that this in the scope of human history, you know, this thing was just yesterday. Well, Walina, thank you for the call. Uh, I'll go now to Beverly in Berkeley. Hi, Beverly. Hi, I, I have a question and a comment, a couple of comments. And my first question is, I am so um, wondering and hoping that as President Biden and Joe Biden is going to lead up education, having worked in state government um, with the prior governors, I'm hoping that because the federal government does give money to school districts, that there's some way they can incentivize, give an incentive to, to schools nationwide to correct and to clean up American history to include the truth about slavery. As an African-American, I have was a, a history, black history minor, and there are things to this day that I continue to learn. And so I am hopeful that this is not just a, a moment in time where we, because of George Floyd, that people are much more aware, but that this becomes a part of our understanding, our learning, and our healing process. Because unless we can look at the, the, the evils of slavery and the devastation that it's caused us systemically, it's not going to change in terms of people that embrace their grandparents and love they can love them but relationships are complicated but history is history and in the jewish community they continue to remind their community and the world of what they suffered through holocaust and it's long overdue that we as a people push our leaders and our our legislators to look at history and to include that so that we can be seen and we we are addressed in an appropriate way because I stand having a master's degree and a husband who had a PhD. I stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and I have roots from New Orleans and my great grandmother, who I'm just starting to do a family tree on, I, you know, I found through records and having a, a genealogist look through history. She was born in New Orleans and categorized as mm -hmm. a mulatto. And what that says to them, what I wonder about now deep in my heart is what did she suffer through? What did her mother suffer through being considered a mulatto in New Orleans? I know what that means, and yet I want to know her history desperately. Mm. And so I think that's a history that all of us need to understand. What did our people go through, and what does America not owe us, but they do owe us to acknowledge the history and, and, the, and, the, and the foundation that we created in this country, the foundation mm. that we created for America's wealth? Beverly, thank you for sharing that and adding that to this show. I really appreciate it. Let me bring in next Amos Brown in San Francisco. Hi, Amos Brown. Yes, good morning. Thanks for calling um, in. Brother Smith and yes, to the sir. audience. Thomas Jefferson and even the first governor of this state Peter Burnett, were complicit in this evil of enslavement of blacks because their minds were infected by Western thought. It was Aristotle during the 4th century B.C. who said in his politics that the black man was inferior because his skin was black, and that we would never be capable 
of self-governance, we would always have to have a white man, a white woman over us. That virus, that evil, has infected the body politic of these United States of America and the faith community. The Southern Baptist Convention was founded in, in 1845. Why? Because white folks were saying in the South, nobody's going to tell us to get rid of our slaves. And down to this day, the reason why that man, Donald Trump, made his ignorant, evil statement that Africa was a asshole, it all happened because Aristotle, the academy, the church house, infected us with this virus. And we have refused to get the vaccine. We refuse to accept the remedy. Right now you have Mitch McConnell over there in the Senate telling the lie about our past and saying that critical race theory is something that is evil. Until the general public knows this, that everybody... Western culture who's white has been complicit in this evil. And even right down there at Stanford University, Edward Ross, one of the first fathers of sociology, coined the phrase in 1891, racial suicide. And what was it about? Brother Ross said, white folks better get ready to tell all the white women to have at least four to six babies. Uh, else, those black, brown, and yellow folks will outnumber us, and we will go into extinction. That's where all of this nonsense began, in the mind. And consequently, we have not accepted the therapy to make sure that we become whole as a nation and as Reverend Western people. Amos Brown, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're also talking with Clint Smith, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One of the things that uh, Amos Brown is saying, Clint Smith, that I'm reminded, reminds me of something in your book, I'm reminded of when you have been talking about how, how positions of fact at this point have successfully been turned into positions of ideology. So for example, if somebody is saying a truthful statement that the Civil War was fought over slavery, um, that it can, it has successfully in some, in some areas become a position of ideology. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um... And, and to sort of build on the example you used, I mean, especially in this sort of political climate in which there is a, a state sanctioned effort across different legislatures throughout the country uh, to prevent people from understanding the totality and, and truth of the history of this country and the history of slavery, the history of indigenous genocide, the history of how so many immigrant groups were treated, how women were treated. I mean, there is, you know, literal language attempting to prevent those things from being taught in that sort of context and even before this you know if i said that the again that the confederacy was a treasonous territory that raised an army predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery 
that would be perceived as me uh, attempting to indoctrinate students with my political beliefs, or, or that would be reflective of me making an ideological statement, rather than one that is actually grounded in primary source documents. All you have to do, to the point you alluded to before, is, is look at the declarations of Confederate secession and see a state like Mississippi, which says very specifically that our position is thoroughly uh, aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. You know, they were not, these folks were not unclear about why they were seceding from the Union and why the Civil War would eventually be fought. They were quite clear about it. But part of the success of the Lost Cause propaganda effort um, is that it is, creates a sort of Orwellian muddying of the waters to, to take fact and turn it into something else. So that what you have is ultimately, you know, in 2018, the Southern Poverty Law Center found that only 8% of U.S. high school seniors were able to identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War, I mean, even though the even though it's right in front of us. Um, and so, incredible. in many ways, that effort has been yeah, it's it's just been uh, unsettling unsettlingly successful. Yeah, you know, we just have thirty seconds left, and you do write that our country is in a moment at an inflection point in which there is a willingness to more fully grapple with the legacy of slavery. Where do you see that going? I think that we are in a moment where people understand uh, that the contemporary manifestations of inequality are not just interpersonal, they are not just modern, they are historic, and they emerge from a long, deep, and, uh, and shameful history that we have to take seriously and that we have to engage with, and that we have to engage with honestly. And I think there are more people now willing to engage in that way than there have been um, in my lifetime. And I'm hopeful that we'll continue to uh, have more people who are willing to um, think of them that way and have those conversations. Well, your book certainly makes the case for it. It is How the Word is Passed. Clint Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. Blanca Torres produced this segment. Thank you for listening. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.